You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, everybody. This is Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, with your host, Peter Defty, and brought to you by Vespa. And I'm here today with Dave Feldman. And Dave's a software engineer with Iron Ninja Tech. And um, he's become a great friend of mine and uh, doing some transformational work in uh, lipid dynamics. And yes, it's an N equals one, but Dave's work and um, the almost obsessive uh, controls he's put in in his data collection um, are basically verifying what we've been seeing for years in fat-adapted athletes. So this is going to be one of these podcasts where you're going to get some real, truly cutting-edge information out there. This is information on lipid dynamics, your cholesterol dynamics that's not in the medical literature. And if you talk to most people out there who are experts in this, they would say this just doesn't exist. I have to give Dave a lot of credit because right there in front of everybody, he called me the most consequential person in the room, and I've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Um, yep. But Dave's been uh, playing with his self. It's sort of a, a self-experimentation. Nothing, nothing that intended there, Dave. <laughs> uh, sorry, this is going down the wrong direction as usual with me. But, but um, Dave, Dave's been uh, self-experimenting because uh, with his cholesterol after going on a ketogenic diet. And, and Dave, why don't we start by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, and then what got you to where we were at Vail. And then we'll, we'll segue to the Vail conference and how you spoke to me and a number of other people and then our little conversation and where we've gone with it from there. Uh, sure. First of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, secondly, I'm going to be revealing some things in this podcast that, frankly, a lot of people just straight up won't believe. Uh, it helps to kind of get the story on how I got to the point that I did. And for that, yeah, we'll go ahead and take them back. Starting in April of last year, I had wanted to dodge type 2 diabetes because I would gotten a marker for uh, hemoglobin A1c. Uh, being a 6.1, which is right in the mid-range of prediabetes. And after doing some research, I decided to take on a ketogenic diet. Uh, shortly after I did so, both my dad and my sister were inspired and also did so. And in the course of doing it, I did my research on a number of things, but the number one question that comes up and still comes up is, in eating all of this high fat, especially saturated fat, will my arteries get clogged with cholesterol, and then I'm going to die. Yeah, the old and, cholesterol scare, saturated fat and cholesterol. Which I asked several times over and did a little bit of research at the time and generally got satisfied that it probably wasn't too big of a concern, but also because I had normal cholesterol, quote-unquote normal cholesterol, before approaching the diet, I figured it probably wouldn't get impacted that much. And in the next half year, six months, both my dad and my sister had gotten blood work before me, and their cholesterol had increased a little bit, but not a lot. And so I figured, being that they were immediate family members, the same would happen to me. So when I got my blood work a little bit after them, I found that my cholesterol shot up extraordinarily high. And this, is your, went, this is your total cholesterol? Yeah, my total cholesterol went from about a 186 to 357. And my LDL... Uh, cholesterol, which was hovering around, I want to say 130, went to somewhere in the neighborhood of 270. Uh, there's so many tests <laughs> since that point, it's it's hard to remember the exact numbers. But the point is, is it jumped so high that it really put me into shock. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I was genuinely dumbfounded by that factor. Uh, I then came to learn that there's a term used within the low-carb community called a hyper-responder. Hyper-responders are people who take on a low-carb diet and see their cholesterol rise by 50 to 100% or more, both their total and LDL. And there's not really a clear explanation for that as of yet, but I started finding myself learning every single thing I could about cholesterol to, to figure out why. And in the course of doing that, 
I found that there actually is a kind of pattern that's very familiar to me and many of my colleagues in software engineering in that the lipid system, the system that actually curries around the cholesterol inside your body, is in many ways very much like a distributed object network within um, a software engineering server. It's, it has actually many different qualities that are similar to the Wi-Fi in your house. It's really pretty crazy. And in so doing, I started thinking, okay, well, if, if this is true, then there really should be two tenets that I can count on, if this is true. One is that actually it's got to be much more agile than they think it is. That it's got to actually be much more responsive. They usually say, here, do this lifestyle change or uh, take this statin drug and come back to us in three to six months. We'll do another blood test and see how it's been affecting you. And I thought maybe it's really a lot faster than that. I started taking blood tests about every two weeks. But the second tenet is that if the vast majority of my energy is coming from fat, and if that ends up being kind of the end product of most things, in fact, we find out our carbs also can be turned into um, energy for fat to be stored in adipose tissue, sorry, your body fat, for example. Um, well, then patterns should start to emerge that we can observe in all of these tests, discrete patterns associated with this phenomenon. And with those two things in mind and doing the amount of blood testing I did, sure enough, patterns did emerge and it, they ended up being the opposite of what I've read in the literature. What I've read in the literature over and over again is if you're finding that you're a hyper-responder, if you're finding that your um, cholesterol is high, you should back off of fat, and in particular saturated fat, because it may turn out that you have a higher sensitivity to it. Now, it may be that there is a baseline that changes, and I definitely feel like my baseline is at a certain level, but it's very static. There's an amount above the baseline that changes and shifts almost in perfect inverse correlation with how much dietary fat I eat. And I realize I'm going to have to kind of unpack that a little bit because I may have lost a few people there. But let me kind of break it down like this. When you and I met at Vail, I had eight data points. And in those eight data points, I had periods of time where I ate very little total calories, but still on a ketogenic ratio. Therefore, I had total, uh, a total amount of less fat. In those periods of time where I had less fat, my corresponding cholesterol in my blood for both total and LDL was higher. Conversely, when I had more calories and thus more fat in my diet, including saturated fat, my overall total and LDL cholesterol was lower. And so I end up taking this to Vail. I end up telling a whole bunch of doctors, I'm going to do a reproduction test to see if this correlation holds up. And you and I probably talk the most. I, I don't think there's any individual I talk to more than you, and maybe Ivor Cummins. Sure enough, the two people that weren't doctors <laughs> were at Low Carb Vale. So once I showed that to you, our conversation really took off because you said, that's, that's what I've seen. I've seen this in particular with athletes. I've seen their cholesterol jump very high. And you and I got into talking a lot more about how this relates back to energy. And I really want to kind of pause in this part of the story because I feel like if you are listening to this and you are on a low-carb diet, you have to understand this much about the lipid system. You are being fueled through it. It is the vehicle for which you are getting the energy you're using from fat. Exactly. And this is what we, we spoke about in terms of athletics and energetics uh, that, that what I've been doing with, the, with optimizing people's fat metabolism and doing this fat-based performance has given us. And, and what we were seeing is, is sort of on the real world, because I'm not nearly as smart as you are, uh, is that these people's lipids, many of them were getting correspondingly, quote-unquote, worse as they got stronger and healthier and faster and everything else. 
and, and feeling it, great right and, and feeling, feeling and balanced. Feeling, yeah feeling fantastic and and because i'm a run and gun and get her done kind of guy i was looking at this seeing it going back and reading the literature and, and understanding the basic physiology of, of why cholesterol works um, and how it works and how the liver spits out the ldls and it goes throughout the body to you know to provide fuel to build the building blocks for for everything from cell wall membranes to hormones to everything and i'm thinking this is how it's supposed to work when the metabolism is set to burn fat as the aerobic energy source and and the significance of dave and and what i saw when i met him wasn't because he said i was the most significant guy in the room because that kind of scared me because <laughs> i was in the room with steve finney <laughs> Um, well, and let me and let me actually throw a little context at that. The reason I said you were in, I want to use the word consequential. You're the most consequential man. You could be the most consequential man in the room because the studies that you're performing and the athletes you're working with, when they win, when they win races, when they show the performance of low carb metabolism being extremely effective, that carries way more news than 10 or even 100 peer-reviewed studies that may back up the low-carb diet because that's a human interest story. That's a powerful human interest story because it carries with it an award and a medal. And all of a sudden, then they kind of have to follow it. And this, by the way, all happened before Tour de France this year. So yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate how much uh, what I said proved to be somewhat true and that I never saw such an explosion of talk amongst friends I know who are into cycling, I would tell them about the low carb diet and they would, they would poo poo it. And now they don't. Why? Because now there's a human interest. One guy changed everyone's discussion points about this. Yeah. Two, two got two, two guys the because Chris Froome was also, uh, they're doing oh. a, a, a very interesting version, but, but Roman Bardet, um, you know, we, we personally, Dr. Edwards and I personally worked with them. And and one of the other things that came out of this, um, that conversation at Vail was we got you, you know, I got you hooked up with Dr. Edwards so we could get a lot more blood tests done at, at a reasonable cost. And and so now we, we're at this point since Vail that, that's got, now we've got some a lot more data points because you're the guy that, that, that had, like I said, has data on this and, um, uh, you know, it just seems to click right in line with what we're seeing on the front end with with athletes. Yes, in fact, uh, <laughs> I was I was so excited to find a means by which I could bring down the total cost of the uh, NMRs that I was taking because I had yeah. taken so many NMRs up to this point. But the irony is that then I found out that I could get other tests like uh, high sensitivity CRP. Um, the um, regular lipid panel, which you'd normally not take with an NMR because it would seem um, it would seem like a useless overlap. But yet, I kept thinking I would really love it if somebody was taking constant NMRs for them to also take a regular lipid panel to see how accurate they were next to each other. Because the NMR I, I consider to be extremely accurate, and my data seems to suggest so as much. I'd wondered how much the Friedwald equation really played into. Um, it over a long period of time. So now I, with almost every test, I get a comprehensive metabolic panel. I even check my cortisol. I check my fasting insulin. They become standard. So the irony is, even though I've managed to save more money uh, through the specific test of the NMR, <laughs> I've ended up adding a whole bunch of upgrades because the data is so useful. If I'm going to go in there to get a blood draw, why get one vial when I could get Five. I know it sounds masochistic, but this data has proven to already show an enormous number of things, a lot of which I'll be actually releasing on my blog soon, that has really opened my eyes into what things change quickly and what don't, in spite of the literature that I've read up to this point. Right, and I think this is uh, important. A couple things for the audience to understand is NMR is, is nuclear magnetic resonance, and that's a lipid profile that anybody who's really serious about their health that's the one they should be getting. The standard lipid profile, it's a good one. Uh, it gives you some very basic things, but to parse things out, particularly if you're doing a low-carb approach and you've got a bunch of skeptical uh, 
your healthcare provider is skeptical and your, your friends, families, and loved ones are skeptical, um, you want to get the NMR. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. In fact, to bring it back to the, the original subject, so that's a good segue. Uh, when you eat food, the, all three macronutrients can ultimately be used for energy. But the two you're primarily using for energy are carbohydrates and fats. The, now, in the absence of those, there's many people have already heard of gluconeogenesis. Um, and there's some degree of gluconeogenesis that happens via activation anyway, and especially if you're on a low-carb diet. In the case of being carb-restricted, odds are the vast majority of energy that you're getting are from long-chain fatty acids that came from the triglycerides in the foods that you're eating. There's a whole process by which they can get pulled apart and then put back together into a biological vehicle that carries them around in your bloodstream known as a lipoprotein. And that lipoprotein carries around all other um, hydrophobic lipids such as cholesterol. But the primary purpose, primary purpose of the low density lipoprotein is to carry around your energy. And therefore, and this is kind of an important point to drive forward, if you're fat adapted, whether or not your blood draws show that you have high or low LDL cholesterol, make no mistake, you're trafficking more of those LDL particles. There are more of them that have to make their way through your bloodstream no matter what because that's really where you're getting your energy. Right, and, and, and your LDL particles, a lot of people don't realize this, but on the basic physiological level, the textbook stuff, um, your LDLs are what your liver actually puts out and sends out. The liver is the metabolic engine of the body, and it's packaging these vehicles. It's, as, as Dave says, it's loading up some cargo and sending it out to the various parts of the body. And, um, and your HDLs are the ones that kind of traffic back the unused stuff or the stuff we say we don't want or waste products and for the liver to actually process. So your, your, your liver's actually making the LDLs. It's putting them out there. And so um, I want to context the, in this. The VLDLs. The so, v, yeah. The, well, the key, LDLs too. Well, there's a, there's a key, there's a key um, distinction I'm making. The reason I keep saying LDL particles is I kind of mean for them to be as a larger class. Uh, for the geeky people who are wanting to parse the specific language I'm using, I mean ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But really what we should do is just divide them into two classes right now because that's what comes back to the key of my data. The two classes of LDL particles or ApoB-containing lipoproteins are chylomicrons, which are those created and circulated from the gut, from your small intestine primarily, or VLDLs, very low-density lipoproteins, which are what get... um, uh, get synthesized in the liver. Now, those two entry points into your bloodstream, either from technically the gut takes it through the lymphatic system, the lymphatic system uh, puts it into the bloodstream, or from the liver is where the distinction in my own data comes into play. So to really kind of give the layman's version, what I believe my data suggests is the more food I'm eating, the more chylomicrons I'm sending into my bloodstream. And the more chylomicrons I send into my bloodstream, the more my body detects that and says, okay, we don't really need to upregulate too many of the VLDLs as the counterparts of the chylomicrons because apparently we're in a situation of food abundance. There's plenty of energy around. Whereas if I'm not eating a lot of food, and therefore there's not a lot of chylomicrons being generated from my gut, the liver and the body detects that as well and says it appears to be an energy scarcity. Now, I'm going to just quickly interrupt you here, Dave, but we're talking about food. We're talking about somebody on a high-fat or a a low-carb diet, right? Probably. I have to say probably because I can only speak to my own data. 
up to this point. I would like to, I would like to be able to have somebody who is carb adapted and test this exact same formula because it very well could be that there actually is a certain amount of um, LDL particles that the body configures against based on the kinds of macros you're usually eating. Yep. So it's pot and, and this is where it gets a lot more interesting for you and I, because there's sort of a space beyond this that we can get into. And I, I think we will, we may even, we may even have to just set this up into like two different parts because there's quite a lot to talk about, but basically how it relates back to the energy demands that we have, I believe the body configures for and adjusts for it. And that's why bringing it back to my baseline, I feel like my body intentionally upregulates the total amount of um, low density lipoproteins that it expects to have in circulation because it expects that I'll have high demands of energy and that I don't have a lot of adipose tissue, a lot of body fat to supply that. I don't know that for sure, and I'm doing lots of tests against it, but I feel like that's the next phase of where I'm going. Fair enough. Yeah, my comment is that, that you know, if you're on a high-carb diet, there's also not just chylomicrons, but um, one of the problems with a high-carb diet is glucose just transits pretty darn quickly through the stomach and gut barrier into circulation. And, and of course, when you have a high-carb meal, uh, literally all hell breaks loose because, the you know, the, the body has to go into a crisis management mode to bring that blood sugar down. Yes. In fact, actually... The more that I've researched this, the more that I've come across plenty that suggests your, um, I like to jokingly call your liver sort of the straight-laced biological partner that always has to put up with your crap. Oh, you so, mean like our wives? Yeah, yes, exactly. So you drink a whole lot of alcohol and it's like, ah, oh, what? What did you send me now? I have to detoxify all this, right? If you send it a lot of fructose, it, it has Same to thing. deal with that. It has, yeah. it has to work with that. And virtually every kind of uh, form of energy has the potential of making its way through the liver because the liver has to do certain things to make it appropriate for uh, use within your circulatory system. Yeah, it's amazing because the liver, like if you get an exposure to a heavy metal or something, the liver will process as much as it can. If it's not enough to kill you, the liver will process as much as it potentially can, but the rest of it, it'll take and and send as, you know, bundle up into a lipoprotein and send out to be stored in adipose tissue to be dealt with later. And mm -hmm. so there's all these amazing things the liver does, but um, the point being that the liver, it not only puts up with, with our crap, literally, but um, a lot of times it takes, takes, as the saying goes, it takes lemons and makes lemonade because what we found in a fat-adapted individual who's highly active that say you tie one on the night before with a lot of alcohol or you have a lot of fructose in a fat adapted person the liver um it converts that to when it deals with that toxic load of either alcohol or fructose it actually converts it to fat and stores it right there in the liver but and that's the same with any pretty much everybody else but in a fat adapted person all of a sudden that stored fat becomes an energy source the next day well, I, I would I would go a bit further in that um, because I'm now taking a CRP all the time, I get very, very useful data as to how much stress I am or am not putting on my liver. Uh, and this is, this is super key for everybody to catch. As I just mentioned, virtually everything has to go through the liver except for long-chain fatty acids. The long-chain fatty acids contained in the triglycerides of the food you're eating is going through the gut, which in engineering we call a trail of trust. As in, if the liver is sort of the, I'm going to use kind of a computer engineering term, the singleton, as it says, look, I need to, I need to control just about everything. Those things it doesn't control, such as pure glucose or long-chain fatty acids, it goes, oh, no, 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 I already have systems in place that deal with that. Those, I trust those to go ahead and make their way straight into the, uh, the bloodstream. Because of that, as you know from the experiment that I did around the Keto Gains Conference, I'm so happy that I take constant uh, track of my um, CRP. CRP was hardly touched. My liver is basically on vacation while I'm eating enormous amounts of fat. Why? 
because it doesn't have to deal with it. My whole gut, my whole GI tract, that's that's dealing with all of it. It's getting it into the bloodstream. The cells are getting their food, and my liver never had to take part in that. And that's specific. Now the audience needs to know that specifically on a on a low carb diet. Yes, and therefore, and therefore, yes, there can be things that might find their way into my diet. I'm actually fairly strict myself, but let's say yeah, yeah. Some... Let's just say you're a little anal. <laughs> yeah, you, you can definitely little, say that a little. But this is this is why this is why I'm. I'm so amazed with you because you're 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 doing science. It's an N equals one, but you're doing science, and we're gonna keep this conversation rolling. Yeah. So I I am dumbfounded by the degree with which I'm constantly checking my CRP, and it's well within fantastic range all the time. It's well under uh, the 1.0, which is the reference range is zero to 3.0, and if above 3.0, they want to start taking a look to see what it is that's stressing on your liver. And for as much fat as I consume, or for that matter, as much calories as I consume, my liver has very low indicators for inflammation. It appears my body is in a very uh, low inflammatory state, if you will. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit um, to, yes, I did the reproduction test where I literally did uh, a blood test every single day for a week. The correlation held, and you can read more about that at my blog. I then later, coming up to July, uh, managed to somehow talk my sister into participating in another experiment that's also we're checking out on the blog where we ate exactly the same foods at exactly the same time for 14 days. And in the course of doing that, uh, our blood tests, even though she had a different um, baseline, a different baseline than I did, she had half the LDL-C in her test that I did. We saw our um, we saw our, our LDL cholesterol go up and down at about the same magnitude, so they actually correlated almost perfectly with each other. And it's it, because of how tight the correlations are. It's why I have the degree of confidence that I do. That if we get into a larger study, that if we can get a number of participants that don't have any other metabolic derangements but are also fat adapted we would likely see many of the same uh, correlations that I've seen now only because of how tight the correlations are. I normally would be more reluctant with a smaller sample size, but these aren't, these aren't rough estimates. They're so, they're so comfortably predictable that that's why I did the prediction that I made at the Keto Gains conference that we both spoke at uh, a few weeks ago. Well, and this is, goes back to the dynamism of the body and how, how dynamic it is. But when you, read the, when you really read the physiology and the textbook literature and, and it describes how the body actually works, um, various parts, uh, this all makes sense. There is a scientific basis for what you're seeing. It's not like you're miraculously creating this out of thin air. Um, Everything you're, you're, you're seeing in your data with what you're doing uh, makes sense from a basic physiology. And, it's, this is, and this is part of the problem is the research has gotten so far into the weeds that people are looking at the, the, bar, the hairs, the fibers on the bark of the tree, let alone the tree, and they can't even see the forest. So, um, you know, it's like back to the basics. It's like with the whole high-carb thing, you know, uh, things like basic glucose control in a human you talk to anybody that's in diabetes education you know most of the people unless they're aware of low carb don't understand how tightly controlled glucose is they just say you know you take carbs you titrate your insulin and away you go right well and actually i would i would take it even a step further from my own testing i find my glucose has actually gotten a lot tighter controlled even though it's been a little more upregulated. When I started on low-carb diet, my glucose was generally lower, uh, like in the 80s. It now regularly hovers in the 90s when I wake up, even if my ketones will be like a 3.0. And that's because glucose sparing has gotten really, um, really effective to the point where it's actually maintaining enough with both, and I feel fantastic for it. The other thing that I can appreciate is that the data up to this point has also suggested some other factors that 
um, I'll wrap in in a moment. But let me actually first get back to the Keto Gains Conference. So yeah, yeah, please day- do. And I want to I want to like launch this thing because this is like everybody stand still and pay attention because the the data you're going to see in this and what Dave's going to say is game changing. That's it. Take it away, Dave. This is your baby. Okay. <laughs> so I end up dis- I end up accepting the. Um, uh, extend up uh, the the speaker slot to go ahead and present my data publicly, and in the course of doing so, I decided to structure my most recent experiment, which I'm going to relate that data here now for the first time. I decided to go ahead and do a straight up prediction. I've gotten confident enough in the data that beyond just testing against it, testing against it, I wanted to go ahead and for my very first public presentation of it, 11 months after starting, say this is what's happening. And so, in the course of doing so, I took a blood test in the Monday, or sorry, in the Friday just before the conference started. And in taking that blood test, I took a picture of it, I put it up on Twitter, and I went ahead and composed a slide that actually has that picture of me in it, and said LDL cholesterol, massive shift in progress, which I wrapped into my presentation, which I gave on the Sunday following that Friday. Then on the Monday following that Friday, I was planning to, as I announced in the presentation, take another blood test, and I predicted that my cholesterol would, quote, plummet. On my blog, by the time you're airing this, I'll actually have the uh, slide itself so that people can see for themselves. But how could I be so sure that would plummet, and would I actually succeed at making it the largest shift in cholesterol not only that we've read anywhere, but that I was able to do myself in my own data. And I was fairly confident that that's really what was going to happen. I didn't know for sure because it hadn't happened before. But the way I was going to do it was getting back to this formula. I was going to go ahead and have the lowest caloric intake that I could probably stomach, which I figured would be around 750 uh, calories a day because uh, I'm kind of a big guy. I'm 6'3". Uh, and it's, it's, I don't have as easy a time going lower caloric as a lot of other people who are on a high fat diet, but I went from 750 calories a day up to that first test on the Friday morning to 5,000 calories a day for the three days following it until the blood test on the Monday morning. Okay, so I want people to know that we got to have a big shout out to uh, Luis Villasenor and Tyler Cartwright, the two big king linchpins of Keto Gains. Yes, uh, because great guys, fantastic guys, really on it, really thoughtful, and and this was a, a big opportunity for us because they saw um, through Mike Julian that. Um, we were doing some pretty cutting edge things and got me to, to do a speaker slot. And I said, hey, you know, you guys really want to blow this out of the water. Let's get um, Dave Feldman and Marita Wallace because they're doing things that are just way out on the horizon and, you know, pushing that envelope of, of fat adaptation. Yes. And that's I, I really have to say that had to be one of the best groups. I've gone to a lot of low carb conferences now, but that had to be like one of the best groups that I've had a chance to interact with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, also, um, what Dave's starting to context here, we, we want to just say, I haven't, I have not heard this yet either. He hasn't shared it with me. I told him not to share it with me. We wanted to keep this, um, you know, so that nobody's seeing it. I'm not, I haven't seen the data, so I'm going to be just as wild, but I'm not going to be wild because I already know it's good. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, know. Never know. you never but know. But you never know. It's, uh, yes, and that's the thing. My, uh, you know, my wife is a scientist. Sometimes science goes off in some interesting directions. So um, keep on rolling, Dave. Let's uh, right. see what unfolds. So let me, let me go ahead and first give you the top lines. I technically took a blood test on uh, October 5th, two days before that Friday, uh, the blood test that I'm talking about in question was taken on October 7th. And on October 7th, that morning of, bear in mind again, for the three days prior, really for the five days prior, I had averaged around 750 calories a day. At the, right after taking that blood test on that Friday, before the conference, I immediately start eating like crazy. I remember, I remember that. Remember we were there, you came over to the Golden Steer and... <laughs> 
and had a filet mignon and more. I think it, you had that blob of peanut butter. Yeah, and I was eating peanut butter. There, there was even a very humorous moment during the conference where there was a round table, and it was getting so close to the end of my period that I needed to be done with food so that I had a, a proper amount of fasting before the blood test the next day. They had to actually get up and go grab a block of cheese and start eating the cheese. It's really, I remember because I had some of that cheese. It's really hard to hit 5,000 calories on a high-fat diet because fat is so satiating. It's really, really – it's one of the most difficult things I've had to do in all of my testing. So here we go. On that Friday morning, the blood test on that Friday morning, October 7th, my total cholesterol – was 330. Three days later, my total cholesterol is 264 for a net difference of 66 points in three days. Wow. Wow. Just amazing. My HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol as they like to call it, started at 50 on October 7th. On October 10th, 68 Net difference of 18. Right. That's the cholesterol trafficking back to the liver. Now, the LDLC, the lousy cholesterol, as they like to call it, went from 256 to 183 for a negative 73 points in three days. Now, here's... Now, that's, a, that, that's amazing. Now, any car, most cardiologists have no clue would just, even the ones that are on the on the forefront of this whole cholesterol uh, myth thing are just going to be flat, flattered by, flattened by this. Here's my favorite one, because if you read a lot of the literature, they're not going to focus so much on the LDL cholesterol. They're going to focus on the LDL particle count, LDLP, as they believe more uh, in modern science that that's actually the true atherosclerosis, or the, the actual true atherogenic uh, number that you're going to care about. And this is the particles. Correct. The number of particles, yeah. Now, I myself had to like reread it several points, but sure enough, on October 7th, I had uh, 2,597. The optimal range... From, uh, okay. the, the optimal range, they'll say, an LDL particle count should be is 1,000 or less. The actual average... Uh, anecdotally that I find for non-fat adapted people ends up being probably closer to 1300 for males. Uh, but regardless, I, this is part of my being a hyper responder. I'm usually around this range at around, I want to say 24, 2500. So 2597 wasn't too surprising. This was on October 7th blood test on October 10th blood test. Okay, drum roll, drum roll. We have to dub in a drum roll somehow here, but you know, we're going to just wing it. So Let's go with this. This is this is the big number. 1482. It dropped by 1115 points in 3 days. Amazing. That is just flat amazing and the and current medical science um current research can't even conceive of this. This is this is. If this, this were is, a drug, if this were a drug, I'd be a multi-billionaire right now. Like right, I, well, yeah, yeah. If to I just proved 30, this in a to, lab with a drug, yeah. and I went to <laughs> I went to uh, uh, Bayer, and I said I, I I made this happen in a lab, and I could reproduce it. I would be I'd be right now signing a patent document that would guarantee me. Uh, it's thirty billion dollars a year. Yeah, the the statin industry is yep. the statin industry alone is thirty billion dollars a year. And so yes, how did I accomplish this? Did I use any medicine? Did I use any special exercises? Anything holistic? No. All I did was eat stupid amounts of food on a high fat diet. Now, do you want to know about how much saturated fat I ate in those three days in between this time? Around two hundred and forty nine grams a day. Yep. 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 So, and this is where people are going to have a big disconnect. So audience, hang with us. This guy is eating a ton of saturated fat and cholesterol-laden foods, and yet his LDLP plummets. Correct. So 
getting back to the original theory we said before, because it's worth recapping, why did I feel so confident it was going to happen? It's because the blood test that I'm taking after 14 hours of fasting has one of the two categories still surviving of those two lipoprotein particles. Chylomicrons, the ones that come from the gut, they have a very short lifespan. They only last a few hours, depending on That's correct. what source you're looking at. VLDLs, the ones that come from the liver, they can last for a day or more. And therefore, when I'm taking the cholesterol blood test, it's picking up mostly the VLDLs. The chylomicrons have mostly left town. And therefore, if we're correct in that when I'm eating lots of food, it's downregulating the total LDL cholesterol, or rather the, the LDL uh, particles, in that circumstance, it's going to appear as if I have less total cholesterol. But the reason I want to use the word appear is because I'm not actually that convinced that I've actually lowered my cholesterol by eating more food. I have lowered the test that shows my cholesterol for eating more food. And in that sense, for those people who are going, oh, this is great, I just need to be eating a whole lot more fat. Maybe I need to bump it up to the 5,000 calories a day that Dave's doing. I don't believe that. What I believe it is, is that you're still trafficking enormous amounts of energy. And cholesterol ends up becoming a good proxy for how much of that is moving through. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So anyway, backing it up a step. Uh, the, over the course of this period of time, I also kept track of insulin uh, through all four of the tests. Insulin did rise with the total amount of cholesterol that I had. What I found fascinating was it rose to, at the maximum peak on October 12th, it rose to an 8.3. An 8.3 in my insulin is the highest that I've had in maybe, I don't know, the last uh, year. And an 8.3 is at the bottom third of the range for insulin. The, the insulin range is 2.6 to 24.9. So even for as high of the calories as I was eating, which definitely from a ratio standpoint included much more carbs than I normally get, I think something in the neighborhood of around 60 carbs. Normally I'm wow. hovering closer to 20. Yeah, uh, just because of the sheer volume of food you're eating. Yes, the total calories had hardly any impact on my insulin relatively speaking, even though that was the highest amount toward the very end of the experiment. Wow. Wow. Just, this is flat amazing. And, it, you know, it speaks to just how dynamic the body is when it's in that, um, you know, that natural state of burning fat for aerobic energy sources um, and how the body can respond. Yes, definitely. Uh I have uh, some graphs that I've sent you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can pull those up real quick, you can Got actually em. see the correlation, how it changed. So I did manage to eat so much that it broke the normal correlation I normally have. And by the time somebody's listening to this, they should be able to see these same graphs up on my blog. But I include a dotted line to a purple circle. Uh, that's in the four up graph that you're probably looking at and one that has red triangles. The red triangles are the four different blood tests I took over the keto gains week. Gotcha. Yeah. See them. And you can see on the inverted version that's to the right side, you can yep. see the correlation holds very strong up until I really accelerate, like I really hit the gas on... Uh, the fat going down and then up. Again, it's an inverted axis on the left side. I don't want to okay. spend too long on this only because uh, people who are listening and don't plan to see the graphs may kind of get lost here. But in short, what we're looking at is that the correlations that I have between dietary fat and um, LDLC when taken on a three-day average are very tight up until I do this experiment and I really step on the gas in both directions. The irony is the LDLC ends up finally catching up 
and actually does end up being at the lowest level that I'd ever had and catches up to the original correlation. Um, so it ends up somewhere around, wow. I would say, yeah, this is This is that three-day lag you've talked about. Yes, that's, a, that's in the bottom set of graphs with LDLP. Uh, and it, that's actually with a two-day lag. Two-day two lag, okay. So to, to illustrate that real quick, imagine that you're taking your blood test on a Friday morning. And let's just assume that you've got the same equation working for you that I do. Your LDLC is determined by, if you're taking it on Friday morning, it's determined by the day before, Thursday, the day before that, Wednesday, and the day before that, Tuesday. So days minus 1, minus 2, minus 3, the average of those three days ends up determining, the uh, with about an 82% correlation, your LDLC. The particle count, the LDLP, that I found to have the tightest correlation if you have a two-day gap between when your blood test was taken and the same three days, but just not not uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but instead Monday, Tuesday, sorry, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and ignoring Wednesday, Thursday. Right, that, and then Wednesday, Thursday would catch up. It would something. It would change depending on what you did. It would catch up. I, that's the thing. I don't know that it is the cor- the correlation that I see here. Both these graphs take only a three day window. Both of them, only a three day window, and ignore all other data outside of them. Okay, gotcha. So, gotcha. In short, our at least my body and that of my sister who joined me for the other experiment show amazing amount of responsiveness and a very tight window of adjustment uh, for everything above the baseline. Right. Now, the, the baseline, the degree with which my cholesterol has moved up was in some way adjusted by some long-term expectation. And that I have to work more on parsing out exactly where that is. But it's very level in order for me to see this level of correlation above it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. You're losing me a little bit, but that's okay. Imagine this. Imagine that there's some number, we're going to say, we're going to say 100, that the body says we need to have this many lipoproteins in play. And, and 100 is just a fictional number. Don't associate it with any particular measurement. Let's just say... That, yeah, no, no. Yeah, we're just speaking hypothetically right? here. We're just saying 100 units, right? And in the course of running around in my day-to-day life, uh, from an engineering standpoint, it makes sense for it to keep it at about 100 units because that's about one-third of total energy usage. Now, let's say all of a sudden, for some long period of time... I'm making it clear to my body that the energy usage needs to be double that. Then all of a sudden it says, well, we need to be sure that there's 200 units available for use because total units used in energy is 300 per day. Now that we know that 200 units need to be used, from a long-term perspective, that needs to be our goal. Therefore, we're going to up and down regulate um, to meet that goal of 200. Yeah, and this goes back to what I talk about when I say that in a fat-adapted athlete, uh, the body will make the, you know, will generate endogenously the energy supply to meet the metabolic demand. Yes, and this is where it really would make sense between myself, my uh, sister, and my dad, who all started the ketogenic diet very close to each other. When I started it, I was training for half marathons. The energy demands in my body were very high. So it very well could be that there's a behavioral component that I actually moved up, if you will, the configuration, I guess you could say, of needs for energy. I told my body, look, I'm going to need a lot of energy because I'm doing a lot of running. But you know what? There's not going to be a lot of carbs coming in the door. Right. And yeah. And there's a little other little nuanced piece of this that the body knows is dynamic and, you know, it'll bring in the energy and put out the energy. But but I think on a side note there, when you're fat adapted, the body also gets amazingly efficient. Yeah. So it finds ways to to be much 
better at converting the energy in to energy out, so you need to have less of that energy in. Yeah, in fact, that's why these correlations really dumbfound me, is this level of up and down regulation is unlike anything that I've seen in any medical literature. It's not, and I don't even say that as a kind of brag that, hey, I found this. I say that as being in awe that it exists. I'm stunned that... I could actually look at what the Dow Jones is tomorrow, say I'm going to take the last two digits of the Dow Jones and come within a fairly tight range of that by adjusting the food I'm going to eat over the next three days and give a corresponding LDLC that will have very close to the last two digits of the Dow Jones because I can actually cause it to be that. Yeah, well, uh, we won't go. We won't go down that. I've got a commentary of that, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut on it because <laughs> there, there are actually some pretty big entities on Wall Street that actually can – do that because they can. Oh, fair point, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, the, the larger point that I'm coming around to is this really actually relates back to uh, the one key point I really want to drive home, which is cholesterol in many respects, I think, is just a giant red herring. It's like the spare tire in a car. You can get obsessed with how many spare tires are around on the road right now, but they're really spare tires. They're, they're meant to be used in the case of an emergency. What actually should be watched is the cargo and the people that are coming in and out of those cars because that's really what the purpose of those cars are, is to traffic around the thing that they're primarily being used for. And in the case of low-density lipoproteins, LDLs, their primary purpose is to traffic energy, the triglycerides that are contained within them. And when you're fat adapted, that's going to be a lot because you're trafficking a lot more energy than you are glucose. Right. And plus your body is going to, you know, going to use those um, triglycerides rather than just to let them accumulate. So the cars aren't, you know, in a, you know, stop and go situation, parking lot situation on the freeway with, with no way where to go with this cargo the way a, a sedentary person would, would be or a glucose dependent uh, athlete. Right, which is why oftentimes people will say, if we're trafficking a lot more triglycerides, why don't, uh, why do our triglycerides go down in our blood tests? And the short answer is obvious. It's because you're using them. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. You're using your triglycerides, and even better, you're using your uh, glucose more efficiently as well. And right. Less energy is sitting in your bloodstream overall. That's that's correct. And, and the reason uh, you make a good point here, with a fat-adapted athlete, you're going to have a lot of these um, – VLDL particles because you're trafficking a lot of really dense energy as fat to your muscles for beta oxidation. And the reason why maybe a glucose dependent athlete who's doing fairly low fat, etc., they're going to have a lot of glucose in circulation and less less of the um, fat, less of the um, uh, fat because they're just not trafficking and they're not able to utilize that energy. Uh, yeah. Except to the degree with which there's de novo lipogenesis. It's it's hard to parse out exactly how much they're generating on their own as well. I know that there's some studies on this, but overall it's one of those things that's kind of tricky to nail down. And it's why it's a little bit harder for us to probably see this pattern in somebody who's carb adapted. But that doesn't... Yeah, no, and that's the thing. The carb adapted thing, just it just... It, it creates a, a crisis management situation, and de novo lipogenesis is one of the uh, aspects of this that, um, you know, your body's just trying to get rid of that excess glucose that's, that's actually a toxic load, and, and um, you know, that's, that's one thing, and then you also have things like glycation. Right, right. Well, and for that matter, there's just no way of looking at it any other way. Insulin is ultimately a... Um, it, it's it's kind of an event. And from a software engineering standpoint, we tend to think of things like events and event dispatching. And in a way, the pancreas dispatches the event of insulin and the cells are to respond to it. One of the things that I think we're going to find long term is that 
cells in many respects are kind of like our GI tract in that they have modes. The GI tract is going to say, oh, we're in digestion mode. We now need to curtail more energy to our usage to make sure that we can take care of the food that's being ingested. The same could be said for the mitochondria is either it's in use or it's not in use, which is why fasting becomes very relevant as well. Um, last night, as a matter of fact, I ended up having one of the best runs that I'd ever done. And I did so actually doing kind of the equivalent of a sort of fat load, but I made sure that my GI tract was as clear as it could be before I started. And even though I knew my body was flooded with probably the chylomicrons that I'd uh, had from before, at least to some degree, I wasn't too worried about it because I know that that reception is not as, um, doesn't have the same level of urgency as glucose does. Glucose, there's a degree of urgency which, which it needs to either determine how much is actually going to get used and how much is actually going to end up getting stored. And that cycle can be something that can be um, a lot trickier. Yeah, it, it is tricky, but it's, it's also, that's one of the reasons why athletes get away with a, a lot more carbohydrate in their diet than sedentary people, because um, one of my mentors uh, was an old doctor, and he was a PhD and um, MD, and actually published some cutting-edge work in the 50s on mitochondria that was considered for the Nobel Prize. But he, one of the things that got me thinking was before the discovery of insulin, all the medical textbooks treated a diabetic attack by having that patient either run or exercise vigorously because that was the one way that could bring that glucose load down quickly. So anyway, the take-home here is, is we have this very dynamic body and that in a fat-adapted individual, this cholesterol thing is really a red herring, and, and the VLDL cholesterols are actually the, the cargo hauler for that energy delivery system. Uh, that's, the VLDLs are what ultimately gets picked up by the cholesterol blood test, uh, which is why it appears as though I've lowered my cholesterol when I'm eating a lot of food. That, that would be kind of the quick take-home, I guess you could say. Sure, sure. No, no. Yes, and, and how quickly it can be uh, manipulated. Um, well, and this being the largest manipulation I've ever heard of, this, this Keto Gains conference, a shift of uh, 73 points on the LDLC and 1,112 or whatever it was on the, on the LDLP, I, again, never even heard of anything like this, much less within the span of three days. And it's it's why I feel so strongly that everybody who's making life-changing choices associated with cholesterol, they need to understand at least this part of it, that this system may be in place and may be affecting them as well. We would need a larger study to be able to say it with a greater confidence, but the level of correlation that I see up to this point is why I was able to make the, uh, the prediction that I did and feel confident that it was going to come true. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's, that's key for people to, that are listening to this understand is this is this is we're talking about and we're making our predictions based on a, a pretty good level of fat adaptation um i think as, as we've discussed here in the last few minutes is is the picture becomes much different when you're um a carb burner so, so to speak possibly that's the thing until i can actually i mean i, w I would love to just have a, a bunch of people i could put in a lab right now particularly in a metabolic chamber and see how much their um, their lipoproteins were moving up and down based on the amount of needs that their body determined uh, yeah, for energy yeah. mobilization. Who knows? The correlation could be as close. I doubt it, though, because I think that there needs to be more of a mix in a carb-adapted person uh, with de novo lipogenesis, is my guess. Yeah, I think with the de novo lipogenesis, the, the glycation, and then the influence of all that insulin and relative to... probably, probably inflammation. There, there's probably just a lot more inflammation in a carb-adapted person, generally yeah. speaking, that may also confound the, the variables as well. Absolutely. I think, and that's a th I think you're, you're absolutely right about that in, in terms of not saying we don't, we don't know because we really don't know, but we have a fair degree of, predict of confidence and predictability in a fat-adapted person who's... You know, doesn't have to be super athletic, but somewhat athletic to where their body is just naturally predisposed to burning fat as their aerobic energy source. Right. Wow. 
this is mind blowing, and I, I I hope that the audience can get the significance of of Dave's data and just how big this is. And this is sort of that uh, shot across the bow that really says, "Hey, wait a second, we've got to reassess everything." And and that's kind of what we're doing here um, with trying to optimize our fat metabolism. So Dave, thanks again. Um, we're going to probably have you on it, uh, several more times here down the road because uh, of your work and because of your interest. And uh, I think we're going to be doing a lot more together. Well, thanks so much, Peter. And uh, I, um, I hope to be on again sometime. Thanks. Okay, take care. Thanks. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.